0: Thanks for downloading this message from Devoted, the Christ Central festival for all the family. Christ Central is part of New Frontiers, and our distinctives
1: are made up of four priorities. Being friends enjoying God together, building churches empowered by word and spirit, advancing the kingdom, transforming the world, and reaching nations, making disciples. Devoted is just one event, but you can find out more about Christ Central and other training opportunities at ChristCentralChurches.org. For more about Debated, please visit debatedevent.org. Thanks for
0: listening. See you next time.
1: Feeling bright-eyed, bushy-tailed? Really not, that bad, huh? Did everybody remain dry overnight? Yeah. Very good, that's great. We had a couple of leakages over our site, some due to rain, some due to young bladders that couldn't quite make the course of the evening. Um, not in our tens, I might say. I'm almost 40, so I know when to go to the soil up. Um, we're going to be exploring the final part of Mark's Gospel, this uh, uh, stone called The Way of the, C- Way of the Lord and the Way of the Cross. Uh, if you haven't been here for the previous two sessions, I'm going to do a brief overview to catch you up with what we have been talking about, what we've been looking at. Um, if you have been here for the previous two, then this might be helpful for you just to kind of jog your memory. I know that coming to weekends like this, conference-type things, you can kind of be bombarded with information and it can get to saturation point, no pun intended, uh, where you're, oh, boy, I just I can't remember and, and I can't recall what's been going on. So we'll just do a brief overview of what we've looked at before we launch in today's concept, into today's content Let me just say, I I did mention yesterday that uh, there was some book recommendations um, that I had given to Paul Mogford. Uh, I did go and spy into the bookshop to see if he had actually put them there as well. Uh, There's a book by Richard Hayes called uh, Reading Backwards. So uh, if you are into getting a book perhaps that will give a little bit of background and context to some of the things that I've been talking about, Uh, if you want to find out where I got all my ideas from, uh, then Reading Backwards by Richard Hayes is a very, very good piece of work, fairly small book um, and not overly intellectual Mind you, my wife always tells me that I say that and that I should be careful because it's not always the same for everybody, is it? I, I think it's a great piece of work. It's in the bookshop. You can pick it up there. Uh, it's, there's also a book by Richard Burridge called One Jesus, Four Gospels, uh, I think, or Four Gospels, One Jesus, maybe the other way around. That's a fantastic look at the, uh, the differences between the four Gospels. The particular agendas and theological nuances that have been presented between the four Gospels. Uh, I find it a very, very helpful book. It's probably a really good introduction for you if you're interested in. Getting a little deeper into the gospel stories, into the theology of the gospels, then that one would be a really great one for you to pick up. Um, They're both there on the shelf that's tucked away right at the back corner of the room, uh, above the theology section, which was about a quarter of a row long, unfortunately. And uh, they're there under the heading, I think, Mark's Gospel somewhere, Uh, along with about 20 million commentaries on Mark, which uh, I haven't read any of those ones. So, you know, take your pick and you can tell me if it's any good for a later date. (laughs) Which one? The commentary. Oh there's loads of commentaries. Oh, the second book. I'm sorry. Richard Burridge. Richard A. Burridge. Four Gospels, One Jesus. Okay, let me pray and then we'll launch in for this morning, alright. Lord, this morning we we just pause to reflect on this scandalous reality that here in a field. In Newark, uh, a bunch of a bunch of people like us who are a long way away from Israel, from Jerusalem, from temples, uh, have found ourselves being the very people of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in and through the messiah jesus uh, lord we 're grateful we 're thankful that you are faithful to your promises. You promised Abraham a people that would be from every clan on earth. And here we are, Lord, you've gathered us, you've brought us in, in the Lord Jesus, you've made us to be your own, you've called us your very beloved people, and we thank you. Lord, we were once far away, separate from promises, separate from covenant, outside of the things of God, and now brought right in, given status and an inheritance and an identity and we bless you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that as we open the scriptures again this morning, that you would speak to us, that we would meet Jesus in his word, that we would find our hearts enriched and warmed, that this would not be just some more information, but that we would encounter you, uh, that we would be changed, that we would be, again, awestruck at the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. Help us as we hear Mark's voice unpacking for us the glory of Jesus. Help us to uh, to tremble uh, in awe at the one who is almost beyond description, beyond kind of grasping and identifying. Help us to wonder at that and teach us to worship you, to follow you, to embrace your ways, and to walk in them. We ask it for your name and glory, Lord Jesus, and for our great joy. Amen. Amen. All right, are we ready? Excellent. Let's do a brief recap then. Uh, this lifestyle has been about the gospel of Mark and what I've been trying to show you over the course of the three days is uh, it's kind of a way of thinking about how we might read Mark's gospel, how we might interpret it, how we might understand it. Uh, and I've tried to show you the way that Mark has structured the gospel because the way, that the, the way that Mark has structured it is really important for us in understanding how we interpret it. Mark has a hand in steering what we understand and how we read it. And so, if you remember, we looked first on the first morning at the theme of the way of the Lord. Mark begins with this, uh, Mark begins with this, this gospel with this ascription from Isaiah chapter 40, prepare the way of the Lord. And it's also, there's Malachi 5 in there and there's Numbers 23 in there as well. But this idea that this is about the way of the Lord. And the question was, Well, who is the Lord? And then Jesus appears, and we find this kind of unfolding narrative of Jesus' divine identity, that he shares the unique divine identity of the God of Israel. Mark uses Old Testament scriptures to show that this one Jesus is the Lord. He's not just pointing away to God to somehow give some credence to what he's doing, but the very things that he is doing are actually the embodiment of Yahweh. He is the very embodiment of Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, Jesus the Lord. We've seen this kind of way that that Mark portrays Jesus through narrative, through Old Testament Scripture. And then we looked yesterday at the redefinition of the way. Uh, And remember, can you remember what the Greek word is? It was... Hodos, brilliant. See, I've turned you into a bunch of Greek scholars. This is good news. Hodos, or hodon, that's translated road or way. And Mark uses this phrase hodon, or hodos, seven times through chapters 8, 9, and 10 of his gospel. He begins speaking about the hodon of the Lord, and then 8, 9, and 10 reveal this way of the Lord as actually being the way of Jesus. And this profound redefinition is happening where the way of Jesus is being shown to be the way of the cross. And so we understand that the way of the Lord is actually the way of the cross. And we wonder, think, gosh, this beauty and glory, this God who appears in flesh and redefines for us what divine identity really looks like. The way of the Lord, the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. And then today we're actually going to dive into looking at the cross. We're going to explore shortly five great ironies of the cross. Mark's gospel has... A number of ironies. There's irony throughout it. There's mystery throughout it. And in Mark chapter 15, we discover a number of ironies that play out in terms of our understanding of who Jesus is, what his vocation is, and how he embraces it and enacts it. We're going to explore the ironies of this way of the Lord that has become the way of the cross. Here's a. If this catches up with me, this is the trouble with technology. It should all just appear. There we go. So there's our three ways, the way of the Lord, the way we define Mark 8 to 10, and the way of the cross. But before we go there with Mark 15, I need to cover something briefly with you that will help us to understand the full weight and impact of Mark 15. And so we're going to look very briefly at one of the most confusing parts of Mark's gospel maybe one of the most confusing bits of anything that Jesus says, really. And it's something that I've called the riddle of David's son. So if you have a Bible or a device or something, or maybe you just have Mark memorized, which is better than me, then you can recall Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. And in actual fact, no, you don't really need to do that because I'm going to put the words up on on the screen in a moment. Here we have this riddle of David's son where Jesus speaks about Psalm 110.1. By the way, Psalm 110.1 is... Is perhaps the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It was a really, really important verse for early Christians. It wasn't actually much of a verse that Jews in the Second Temple period really used with any kind of sense of longing for the Messiah to appear, but for the first Christians appropriated psalm 110 verse 1 and it became a really key text for understanding uh, and interpreting jesus in the light of the scriptures okay so here's mark chapter 12 and we'll find the uh, the verse from psalm 110 in the middle of this as jesus taught in the temple he said how can the scribes say that the christ is the son of david david himself in the holy spirit declared the lord said to my lord Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? This is a really baffling text, isn't it? What is Jesus talking about? It sounds in some ways as though Jesus is actually denying that he is the Messiah, doesn't it? How can the scribes say that the, son of David, the Messiah is David's son? And then he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, speaking about David speaking in the Holy Spirit in this psalm. Well, what David sees in the psalm is a royal son who is exalted to the right hand of God. He sees a royal son, a messiah figure, a king if you like, who is not like any other human king. He's not like a king who fights with human weapons uh, of warfare. He is exalted, vindicated, lifted up by God, given authority and power, raised up to the right hand of God. And that's not like any other king. David never ascended to the right hand of God. In fact, Peter in his Pentecost sermon makes the same point. David is not seated at God's right hand, someone else is. And so what's happening here in this text is a greater royal son is in view. Have you heard the phrase uh, great David's greater son? Sometimes people talk about Jesus in that sense. David is seeing almost a divine figure who is seated at the right hand of God. He's almost seeing that messiahship is something greater than what he can expect or what a son of his flesh just on its own can, can become. He sees something bigger, something greater. He sees in the Spirit one who is exalted and given authority, one who is vindicated. So when Jesus speaks then about how can David say this thing, and he refers to Psalm 110.1, it's not really a denial of messiahship. Rather, he is redefining messiahship. Remember that what we've seen so far in Mark is uh, is Jesus' being confessed by Peter as the Christ, as the King, as the Messiah. And all the way through, Mark is saying, hey, look at this one who embodies the very identity of Yahweh. He is the the embodiment of God. And so we find these two themes running together. Jesus is the embodiment of Yahweh and the King, the Messiah. And here in Mark chapter 12, we see these two things starting to converge in a sense. The messiahship and lordship may be actually one and the same thing in the person of Jesus. You see, no Jew in the first century would have anticipated that the Messiah would be a divine figure. The Messiah was one of David's offspring, was a king. But here Jesus, who is David's son, is revealing something about a greater kind of Messiah who may actually share in this unique divine identity. In a sense, we can say that David's Lord has become David's son. If son is intended, is understood as being king. You see, David's Lord has become David's son in the person of Jesus. He is both the Lord and he is the king. They come together, kingship, messiahship, and the divine identity. Now, I love Tom Wright. Uh, Uncle Tom, as my friend Ian Galloway refers to him as, uh, Ian knows Tom personally, so he can call him Uncle Tom, and it doesn't seem somehow a little bit uh, disrespectful. But Uncle Tom has said this, Messiahship is a suit of clothes uniquely designed for God's own use. And I think that well sums up what Jesus is doing here in Mark chapter 12. He's redefining the notion of Messiahship. And he's been shown through Mark's gospel to be the embodiment of God. And now he's showing that this is something, Messiahship is something that is uniquely designed and appropriate for himself as an embodiment of the divinity. He alone can claim to be Messiah. He is Lord and King, the divine King Jesus. By the way, thank you very much to Jonathan and Becky who are signing all this. I said, good luck. At the beginning, I warned them that there might be a Greek word here and there, and they seem to be okay with that, so uh, i 've got no idea what you 're saying It's like, this numpty thinks he 's a smart Aleck. let 's stitch him up, good and proper. Yeah? all right. I know what you need. <laughs> I know who leads your church that 's worse. right. so. Does that, has anyone got any questions about that before we move on? Because This is really important to understand in Mark's gospel the notion of messiahship, kingship, but also divinity. This is about God becoming king. And Jesus is the one who is both divine and king. The two things are converging and coming together. And that is going to be very important as we move forwards to see Mark 15. Does anyone want to... Do, do I need to make it any clearer for Anybody? Excellent. Right, you want to go back to the last slide? Yes, the one with the quotes. That's the one. Oh, okay, the last one. Let's go. Which way is that? That was that one. Oh no, no. Oh, am I going the wrong way? No, I'm going the wrong way. Okay. <laughs> the list. Oh, okay, this one. <laughs> it was all going swimmingly. that one no I'm completely lost i so I show you one here and you can tell me which one it was oh no you won't be able to see hang on let me go forwards from okay let's go, let's go through them one by one again okay right so right what there's that one no okay Is that one no All right. this one no oh okay another one you mean okay this one Okay, right. Does Jesus deny he is the Messiah? David saw sort a of greater royal son. Jesus is redefining messiahship. And okay, David's Lord has become David's son. Okay, we good? We're all there. It's probably the right time to tell you that the slides will be up on the Christ Central website. <laughs> So, uh, so, if you do miss anything, it's all right. So, I should have maybe so, that. And the, and the notes as well. Graham, apparently, can do some computer magic and they will all appear. And then we had Tom Wright's Messiahship is a suit of clothes, uniquely designed for God's own use. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. We can move forwards. No, no, no. It's fine. Don't apologize. It's all okay. Um, this is not a business meeting and Alan Sugar's not here. So, uh, it's okay. I don't feel that I'm going to be fired any moment. So we're going to look at the ironies of the cross and this royal riff, if you like, this son of David riff, this kingly thing is going to be really, really important for understanding Mark 15 because in Mark 15 there are seven ascriptions of royalty to Jesus. And seven, of course, in biblical thought is a really important number because seven represents wholeness and completeness. And so something is being said when there are seven royal ascriptions to Jesus. Mark wants you to get something. It's not accidental. It's not just that there, was, there could have been eight. Now there's seven. There's something being said. This is King Jesus. This is what you need to understand. He is the king. And this becomes a profound thing when we understand what is happening because he's not not just king he's lord and king and as we understand the unfolding of mark 15 we realize oh wow this is remarkable and scandalous and beautiful jesus is enacting the victory of god as messiah Jews in the first century, in the second temple period, expected God to send a Messiah who would defeat the enemy, right? We've referred to that over the last couple of days. A king who would come and kick the heads of the Romans in, particularly who would defeat the pagan oppressor who would smash in the teeth of the wicked, and who would give Israel back their land, who would establish a kingdom, who would establish the reign of God, who would make Jerusalem glorious, who would make Israel the center of worldwide pilgrimage that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah chapter 2, the nations flooding to Israel's God. And they expected the Messiah would do this thing. But it had to do with violence. It had to do with God being the conqueror, with God smashing the enemy. And when we see Jesus, on the cross, we're seeing a very different kind of kingship. We're seeing a very different model of messiahship. We're seeing God's way of being king. We're seeing God's way of messiahship. And it's radical and it, tra- it subverts ideas about power and kingship and kingdom. And that's why it was missed. People missed it because Jesus is not the kind of messiah that they were looking for. In fact, we will meet one person who fits the bill for the kind of Messiah that they were looking for in a few moments in Mark 15. So there's these seven ascriptions of royalty to Jesus. I'm going to just go through them quickly so you have an idea of where they are. Are you taking notes on the front row? Yeah, good. Okay. So we have the first one in chapter 15, verse 2. The, uh, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? A royal Ascription, king of the Jews. The question comes, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of David? The Christ is an equivalent term. King of the Jews. It's royalty. Then we find in verse 9, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? There's a second time that this shows up. King of the Jews in verse 9. In verse 12, Pilate says again, what shall I do with the king of the Jews? The third royal inscription to Jesus in chapter 15. Jesus is taken to the soldiers, and they put a crown of thorns on him, purple robe, and mock him, they beat him. They say, hail, king of the Jews. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, the inscription of the charge against him reads, the king of the Jews. Verse 32, the passers-by mock, they rail at him, let the Christ, the Messiah, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross. And then finally, verse 39, the Roman centurion says, truly this man was the son of god and again remember son of god in this context is not automatically a divine title it's a messianic title it means this is the true king but our notion of the true king remember has been shaped by the way that mark has defined the divine identity of jesus who also is the king and so this son of god thing becomes very 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 important at the end of Mark 15. So there's the seven royal descriptions. And now I want to take you through five ironies in Mark 15 that have to do with this, this royal ascription and Jesus' identity and the irony that we find in this chapter. And it's almost double irony at times. There's things that are ironic, but even more so in the circumstances, and it almost becomes in God's economy a, a, a greater irony that reveals more about who Jesus is that leaves you thinking, oh, wow. And, and this, is, this is heavy. <laughs> It's deep and it's it's difficult to enter into because actually it does something to us. I found even in preparing this session, just having to pause and, and think, oh gosh, Jesus, my notions of power and authority, of what it means to have power, to be powerful, they, they have to be redefined by what I, I see of you here in these great ironies of how you are portrayed for me in the cross and in this scene. So buckle in <laughs> uh, and get ready because it's, it's deep, but that's okay because we need to sometimes be gripped by the depth and the, the, the sort of awfulness, if you like, in a true sense of that word of what we read of Jesus in this chapter. Okay, irony number one. The one who is utterly powerless is all powerful. The one who is utterly powerless is all powerful. Do you remember how we saw a transition? Uh, between chapters one to eight, and then chapters eight, nine, and ten, there's this transition that happens—the way of the Lord redefined as the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross. Uh, here in chapter fifteen, we found that there's been another transition that has happened, and it's a transition from power to powerlessness. And if you go back and if you recall in uh, Mark chapter ten, uh, Jesus is said to be walking ahead of the disciples on the road. Remember this bit? Uh, they were on the road, which is on Again, they were on the. and they're going up to Jerusalem and Jesus is walking ahead of them. Uh, This is the way to Jerusalem. This is the way to his death. It's the way to his passion. He's been predicting it. He's been speaking about it. The disciples don't get it. They think that Peter rebukes him and Jesus has to counter rebuke Peter. This is the things of God that are going on. Jesus is walking ahead on the way and and there's power. He's not being dragged kicking and screaming to his destiny. He is the one who is leading the way in this. He is walking ahead on the way, on the road, up to Jerusalem. He's in power, if you like. And there's something quite remarkable happens then, because when we find Jesus on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, some kind of transition is occurring, because Jesus prays, "'Father, let this cup pass from me, "'but not my will, but yours be done.' There's a transition here from Jesus being in control of the scenario, in a sense, to the point where he is submitting himself to the will of the Father. A transition is occurring where he moves from power to powerlessness. He puts himself in the hands of God in this moment. There's a transition occurring. And then when he finally comes before the high priest, and then when he's before Pilate, the transition is complete. He is powerless He is in the hands of the high priest, in the hands of Pilate. But we could say he's in the hands of God, because this is about him giving himself up to the will of God completely, to his vocation as a suffering Messiah king. There's a transition happening from power to powerlessness. When the high priest says to Jesus, are you the Messiah? It's not actually a question in Greek. It's a statement with a kind of... It, Greek doesn't kind of has a different way of asking questions, but it, it reads like a statement. You are the Messiah? <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. You are the, and so it becomes, ironically, this confession of his messiahship, of his kingship. And the confession comes in the moment of his powerlessness. So here he is, powerless, before the high priest, who says, you are the Messiah? Jesus says, you said so. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? You said so. This one who is utterly powerless is really and truly all-powerful. But he humbles himself and entrusts himself to the will of the Father. He becomes powerless. It's only in his powerlessness that Jesus can save. That's the great irony. We read about Barabbas, who Pilate says, listen, Who do you want me to release? Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Or do you want me to release for you Barabbas, who Mark tells us had been arrested for insurrection? Now here's something interesting. Barabbas is basically a terrorist kind of, all right, for want of a better term, maybe a cultural term that we might understand a little bit more. His agenda as an insurrectionist is someone who thinks we can kick out the Romans from our country by force, by force of arms, by, by just power and swords and all the rest of it. He's almost on a kingdom agenda. They want to establish the kingdom of God by force and by power, and that's why he is in jail. And here's the true king coming and be, becoming powerless, In order to be king. Because God's way of becoming king isn't about grabbing swords and spears and booting out and kicking the heads of the Romans in. It's about his becoming powerless in order to enact this vocation, this destiny, about becoming king in God's kind of way. And we actually get this notion of exchange happening here the guilty goes free as the innocent is condemned. There you find the exchange happening. This is, this is the, the narrative version of exchange theology. Barabbas is the guilty one, the one who tried to grasp power, to try and seize power, to try and make himself powerful. Jesus renounces power. And it's in that renouncing of power that he is able to save. And it's in that renouncing of power that we find the, the ability for this exchange to occur. And that's why we can talk about surrender to God. We surrender the will to power. We surrender the will to be in charge. Because when we see what true power looks like in the person of Jesus, we realize that God's way of power is very, very different to the world's notions of power. He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God as something to be grasped for his own advantage but humbled himself and became obedient, taking the form of a servant and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. This is God's way of power, God's way of establishing his reign, God's way of establishing a kingdom. Very different. But this irony of one who is powerful becoming powerless in the crucifixion scene, in the crucifixion narrative, reveals to us what the king of the Jews actually looks like and what it means for God to become king. It's a renouncing of power in order to save, in order to establish the reign of God. The second irony, the one who is mocked as a false king really is the king. And this is ridiculously ironic, but Also doubly ironic, in a sense, because the soldiers do the appropriate thing. This is the crazy bit. Because remember, this is about the way of the Lord that has now been redefined as the way of the cross. This is about how God in Christ becomes king. And so when the soldiers, with caustic irony, say, Hail, King of the Jews! They're doing the right thing. They are doing an appropriate thing for Jesus' vocation as King of the Jews. This is what it means for him to be King of the Jews. To pour himself out, to become powerless. And he's mocked in this ironic twist. But it's the right thing, even though they have no idea what they're doing, they are actually doing the appropriate thing, hailing him as king in that very moment. It's like a, putting the crown on his head. That's, that's the right thing for God embodied in Christ to do. It's appropriate. This is not some, oh dear, it's all gone a bit out of control. This is what it means for God to become king. And the soldiers, we see them hailing him as king of the Jews, and you think, oh Lord, it's true. That's appropriate. And they're mocking, but the irony is this is the right thing in the right time. This is what it looks like for God to become king. Because the way of the Lord is redefined as the way of the cross. Oh yeah, this should have been the slide before. (laughs) soldiers led him away. They clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. Began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. They worship him as king, (laughs) although they are mocking. But we understand it. this is the right thing to do, ironically. The third irony. The one crucified as a failed king is the conquering king. Crucifixion is Jesus' coronation. That sounds strange to our ears. The cross is the moment of Jesus' coronation, if you like. He's had the crown placed on his head, the purple robe ascribed as royalty, and then he's lifted up On the cross. In fact, in John's Gospel, if you want to read a different perspective on this, all the way through John's Gospel, Jesus is referring to being lifted up. And he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. And when the Son of Man is lifted up from the earth, this is the moment of glory for Jesus. This isn't the moment of defeat. This is the moment, this is what it looks like for him to come into his glory. Do you remember in chapter 10, uh, we were looking at the, uh, actually I don't know if we did look at it, in chapter 10, James and John approach Jesus and they make this request that they might sit at his right and his left when he comes into his glory. And Jesus says, look, you don't know what you're asking for. That's only for those for whom it's been prepared. And he doesn't say by my father, but the implication is that God knows who will be at his left and his right when he comes into his glory. And then we find in Mark 15, in the crucifixion scene, two robbers crucified with him. One on his left and one on his right. Suggesting in Mark's narrative that this is the moment when the Messiah comes into his glory. One at his left, one at his right. Boom. Is this redefining your notions of divine power a little bit? Because it ought to be. This is the moment of glory. This is the moment of being lifted up. By the way, the term for robbers here, don't imagine that robber is somebody who kind of nicks a deodorant can from your local (laughs) 7-Eleven. The Greek term for robber here is lestai. And lestai is a term that the, uh, Jewish, that the Jewish historian Josephus refers to as a revolutionary, like Barabbas. They're that kind of violent revolutionary. And so here we have the wannabe power mongers at Jesus' left and right, and enthroned in between them is the true king of Israel who finds power and glory and authority and kingship by surrendering the right to power, by surrendering to the divine will, and being lifted up on the cross in glory with a crown on his head and hailed as king of the Jews. We sing it, don't we? This is Jesus. In his glory, King of heaven dying for me. Yes, yes, and yes. This is what it means for Jesus to be glorified. The great coronation moment. Rowan Williams, I I think I mentioned this book, The Wound of Knowledge, uh, a day or so ago. Roland Williams, in the book *The Wound and Knowledge*, speaks about the resurrection as the vindication of Jesus. He's vindicated as what? As the crucified Messiah. the the, the resurrection points back to the cross and says this one who was crucified in weakness was indeed the divine king, the divine Messiah. The resurrection says he was in the right. So therefore the resurrection says this one who was lifted up, that was his glory. This is the one we look to. This is what we learn, power. What kingship in God looks like is Christ crucified, the Messiah king, the divine king, God in flesh, enthroned on the cross, hailed as king by Moccasio, soldiers but pouring out his life to exchange his own his life for ours, that we might go free that we might inherit life that we might learn what kingdom kingship power in god looks like this is jesus in his glory am i preaching again (laughs) thank you yeah the front row good yes yes it's like mumblings of, here. here. <laughs> Excuse me one moment. I think it's so important that we allow this to shape how we think about power. How we think about authority, how we think about leadership in the church. This is not just a model. This is not just, well, this is what God is like. This is what God intends us to be like in our relationships with one another. This is how God intends elders to be, giving themselves over to the divine will, foregoing the right to power in order that God's power might be demonstrated in church. The amount of conversations I have with people who come into church thinking that leadership is about being the top of the tree. It's about being number one. And people say, well, why don't you just kind of, you know, can't you just kind of give some things down and all the rest of it? They say, look, this is not about being the CEO of a corporation. This is about modeling the cruciform lifestyle. It's about imitation of Christ. And power looks like this. True, genuine, godly power is a poured-out life. And authority and rule come through that. And it has to shape the way we think about kingdom mission kingdom mission is not riding in on a stallion going, it's more Monty Python, (laughs) clippity 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 clop. It's humility. Paul could speak about this. Paul, the great man of power, the man, the apostle of the free spirit, as F.F. Bruce spoke. This man of power could speak about beatings and shipwrecks and persecutions, lashings. Because he understands, look, as the head goes, so goes the body. As Christ goes, so goes the church. This is what it means for the kingdom to come. Christ, crucified in weakness, vindicated, lifted up as a first fruit. So we await a resurrection. We await glory. We await the full revealing of who we are as the children of God. But in the present, we are given over to all kinds of hardship and suffering, and so the point of the Spirit, I think, in some senses, is not to kind of get us over weakness and vulnerability. It's not to kind of transcend our weakness and our fleshliness and our limitations. It's to empower us in those things to bring the kingdom through those things. It doesn't make you Superman to be filled with the Spirit. It actually empowers you to, be, to lead a cruciform life like Christ. You know, in John's Gospel, John. Oh, man, I'm going off piste. That's okay. We've got loads of time because the meeting ran over, so it feels like we've got loads of time left. When John describes Jesus lifted up on the cross, and what does he say happens? A, a Roman soldier comes and sticks a spear in Jesus' side, yeah? And what happens when he sticks the spear in? Blood and water flows out of Jesus' side. Now, you backtrack in John's gospel to chapter 6, and Jesus says the one who believes from out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John says this he said about the spirit who was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, the heart from which the water flows out, in Greek it's quite clear, it's Jesus' heart. It's not that water flows into the heart or out of the heart of a believer, although that is undoubtedly true, but there Jesus says it's out of his own heart. The rivers of living water flow. And And then, so that's not until he's glorified. Well, where's the glorification in John? The cross. And in goes the spirit and out flows blood and water. And so the living water that flows from Jesus for his church comes via the cross through his crucifixion, through his being lifted up. And it's there that we come and we drink and we receive Jesus, your love, your grace, your power. It flows from the crucified one in John's gospel. Power, glory, the cross, the kingdom, mission. This crucified Jesus shapes these things for us profoundly and deeply. Let's allow this text to shape our understanding of these things that we might be imitators of them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Irony number four. Whoa, 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 I've gone too far. Okay. The Savior who cannot save himself can save others. This is what we read. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Exactly. Precisely. An American theologian, Hans Fry, noted that the ironic words of verse 31, he saved others, he cannot save himself, are true precisely because if Jesus had not forsaken the power to save himself... He couldn't have saved others. It's the very place where he gives up power that enables salvation to happen for, for us. And so the irony, once again, is intended to be caustic. They intend to mock him, but it proves to be ironic at a deeper level because those who mock Jesus, they can't know that this is the way that God's salvation occurs, that God's salvation of his people doesn't occur through coming in and riding in in great glory and power, but through giving up power, that an exchange might occur. That a kingdom might come, that he might draw in those who are on the outside to become his people. This is the kind of pattern that we see. If he hadn't given up power, he couldn't have saved others. This transition then is something of the realisation of God's power to save in and through Christ. It's his giving up surrendering to the will of the Father, becoming powerless in order for God's saving power to shine through. Final irony. Irony number five. This is what it looks like when God comes down. I wonder if you remember how I began this whole life son. We talked about Jesus' baptism. If you were there, was, were you there in the first session? Who was there? Okay. Like, oh, Mark. Well, okay. nice that you came back. <laughs> Jesus' baptism, we read that something happened, didn't it? Jesus saw what? Heaven torn open. that we noticed that Matthew and Luke also speak about the heavens, but they say they were just opened. But Mark says that they were torn open. The Greek word, this is your moment, guys, schizominous. Let's see you do that one, then. (laughs) He just said, idiot. (laughs) The heavens are torn open, it says, in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is baptized. And that was an allusion, do you remember, with uh, Isaiah 64, verse 1, and the prophets longing that God would rend the heavens and come down. And it's the only place in the Hebrew scriptures where the verb to tear is used in connection with the heavens. And so we read in Mark chapter 1 and we see, hey, hang on a minute, something about Jesus' baptism here, something about the tearing of the heavens, Mark is trying to say to us, look, this is God coming down. It's very deliberate. This is what it looks like when God comes down. But now I want to point you to the other place in Mark where there's a tearing because as Jesus breathes his last, it says the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And it's the same Greek verb, skizomenos, torn in two. And so Mark has bookended the whole of his gospel with two tearings that allude to Isaiah 64.1. And it's as though Mark says, listen, This is what it looks like for God to come down. And the awful climax where we see with greatest clarity, fearful, awestruck, wonderful clarity, what it looks like for God to come down is the moment of Jesus' death on the cross. This is what what happens. This is what it means. This is what it looks like for God to come down. We see it here. We see it in his death as he breathes his last. The act of divine violence. And so in these moments, it kind of says that everything in between the baptism and the cross is all of story that tells us what it's like when God comes. Christ, the embodiment of Yahweh, walking the way of the Lord, redefining the way of the Lord as the way of the cross, redefining messiahship and kingship, becoming powerless, transitioning from being in power to powerless, the will of God, being hailed as king in ironic twists that mean more than the ones who could possibly know, and then breathing his last and let. Tur- curtain temple, tor- curtain tur tem- yeah, that thing torn into. God has come down. God has come down. What Isaiah longed to see has happened in this man, Jesus. God has come down in power. And now think of the irony when the passers-by say, Come down from the cross. The irony is they are using the words that Isaiah used to evoke God to come down. But here in the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, those words are being fulfilled, that prayer is being answered right in front of their very eyes. God has come down. And this is what it looks like. And you can't see it. But in this twist of irony, what you use as mockery is being seen to be the wisdom and the power of God to save. God has come down in the person of Jesus. And this is what it's like when he does. And so Mark turns our notions of power and kingdom and what it looks like for God to come down, all upside down, it's all topsy-turvy, it's all changed, it shakes us to the core. Wow, how do we then do this? How do we then live in this? How do we follow the crucified one? And remember, Jesus is instructing the disciples. He's trying to get them to see, to understand, this is the way of the Lord. And so Mark speaks to us. And the question, who then is this, becomes our question. And the questions of the, the things about power and wanting to be top cat, all those kind of notions, they all, oh, it all speaks to us and says, hey, Follow in the footsteps of this one. This is about your being a disciple of Jesus. This is about you following in his way. This is about churches that take on a cruciform format, a way of life, because that's the way of Christ in the flesh. We follow him. We trust him. We become weak in order that his power might flow through us. This is what it means to be a follower of him. The final ascription, remember, was on the lips of the Roman centurion who stood facing Jesus. And his confession is the only non-ironic one in Mark 15. The only non-ironic one. Truly, this man was the Son of God. And Richard Hayes has pointed out that this one non-ironic confession of the kingship of Jesus occurs after his death. It's only in view of his death that we get to understand who the king really is. And it's on the lips of a Gentile. It's on the lips of the kind of person that Barabbas and the, the Lesti, who were crucified with him, wanted to smoke. But here he is, the first person to confess this is the king when Jesus dies. It's a Roman centurion. How ironic. Here is irony, mystery. Here is glory. Here is Jesus. Here is our God. Follow him. We've not got anywhere close, believe it or not, to exploring all the riches of Mark's gospel. There's so, so much more. There's so much depth. And you all thought that it was the shortest one and so the easiest one, didn't you? (laughs) I know I did I was embarrassed my journey with all this began when I had to preach a sermon on Luke 19 believe it or not and I, I turned to Luke 19 I thought oh great it's the, the parable of the talents this is easy this is all about Jesus is showing up one day he's going to come again he's going to say what did you do with the gifts that I gave you and I'll have to so the easy thing is come on everybody be faithful with what God's given you and I thought I know I'll turn to N.T. Wright's book Jesus and the Victory of God because he might have something on the parable of the talents simultaneously the worst and the best thing that I ever did. As I opened it up and realized there was about 150 pages on that parable, I thought, oh, this might take a little while to read. And as I read, I realized that there was going to have to be a dramatic rewrite of my sermon because I was really, really wrong. But you know, it did something. It began a journey with me of rediscovering the gospels and the voice of the evangelists and learning to learn from them as they articulate the identity of Jesus. It meant going to the text fresh. It meant coming to the scriptures and not reading them through a lens of conservative evangelical piety, but trying to peel that away in order to really meet Jesus and then assess doctrine and the rest in the light of the text. We come to the text. And so if nothing else grips you over the course of this life zone, I hope that it will inspire you to go to the text, to address the scriptures, to try and peel away presuppositions. You know, sometimes people say, oh, can't we just read the Bible as it, as it is? Can't we just read it plainly? As it, well, there's no such thing as a plain reading. There isn't. Because all of us read from somewhere with a bunch of presuppositions, with a bunch of preformed ideas that we bring to the text. And so becoming aware of that is one of the first steps to actually coming to the text and maybe for the first time allowing it to address us in its own terms, which are God's terms. So let me encourage you to be those who dive in and dig in in a deeper sense in that way. Mark never just says... Jesus is God, I okay? can't just, the, come on, get it, just get it. It's almost like it's too heavy for him to just do that. It's too intense, it's too rich, it's too deep, it's too powerful, it's too profound. There's too much enigmatic mystery about that. And so he teases out an understanding. Mark wants us to tremble before God in awe and wonder at this irony. This is Jesus, this is the king in his glory. And perhaps again, as we've repeated throughout the life zone, we must learn to speak in slightly more hushed terms about whom God is. Perhaps we need to not blurt out too many certitudes, but be in awe. It's good to be confident. It's good to know what you think. But there are things that are too awesome sometimes to just blurt out. And for Mark, it's too awesome to just blurt out. And so maybe meditation on Mark, meditation on the identity of Jesus is a way of drawing us deeper. It's a way of causing us to have a deeper sense of the glory and the mystery of God. The way of the Lord. The way of the cross. That's the end of the lifetime. I'm going to open up for questions. I'm done speaking. Um, I feel like I've been speaking. I feel like I've been James the Giant Preach, basically, for uh, <laughs> for three days. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm an introvert. I, I, I actually, I, I mean, you know, don't get the wrong idea. Introverts are not people who are just very shy and quiet. Introverts are people who need time on their own to recharge their batteries. And so like a church camp, when you're speaking, is like the worst possible thing because it's like... Oh. So uh, yeah, I'm, this is, I'm glad I've reached the end. Uh, it's been a joy. I've really enjoyed it. I, I have, genuinely, but I'm looking forward to kind of hiding in a dark room for a week with some commentaries or something. Um, that's just the kind of nerd that I am. Um, but I would love to hear your questions, your comments. Um, you, you can throw tomatoes again. You can wail loudly, heresy. It's, a friend of mine once said to me, you know, that, uh, you don't get uptight if people disagree with you theologically. Um, that's okay, and you might be wrong. Um, and so yeah I, I might be wrong uh, but I trust that to God Tom Wright says 20% of all I say is probably wrong but I just don't know which 20% um, so that's you know I'll lay it all out for you all to play it out you know <laughs> you, can, you can figure that out and tell me but uh, any questions about I mean anything yeah we've got one in the whoa 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 hey hang on a minute it's like buses you wait for one takes ages and then you get about 15 and one here here we go if you could just say your name and where you're from, that would just be helpful. just Good morning, I'm I'm born from Shrewsbury, Barnabas again. Born, hi. Um, just wondered, obviously with older scripture in the Old Testament saying about Jesus is coming and and the crucifixion and everything, all the way of his death, would the Romans have known much about that? Would they have read into it like Pilate or... You know, how much would they have been aware? Of? And also with the Jews, would they have been... Many of them being aware or... Uh... So I'm just going to ask you to clarify the question. So would the Romans have had yeah, a... Would a they th- have read the, the Old Testament or the script at all, or would they have... Well, I think some some would. I think you read about... Uh, what's the name of the guy? Cornelius in Acts 10. He's, uh, he's a, a God-fearing man. Um, and you could become a... A God-fearer was basically somebody who tried to, who kind of in some senses enjoyed the benefits of being associated with the the, the people of Israel, but not the full hog, i.e. not being circumcised. (laughs) It's a cushy option, isn't it, if you're a Gentile? Um, So so perhaps some pious ones. uh, But in terms of the political thing, I mean, I I guess throughout Israel's history, throughout the kind of the intertestamental period, and by that I mean from Ezra-Nehemiah time right the way through to the first century... Um, there were all kinds of uprisings, and you know, Jesus wasn't the first messiah on the scene. Um, the, the, the great one that people that is referred to is, uh, is uh, Judas Maccabeus, who, uh, who kind of led a revolution and quite a successful one as it happens. Uh, and it's actually in, in Mark when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and uh, he's on the, the donkey's colt and the people are crying out, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. It's kind of, they think that it's going to be another Judas Maccabeus figure. And so the Romans are probably more aware because of the Jews, the, certain Jews kind of revolutionary tendencies that they think they've got a claim on the land and it's our job to kind of make sure that we keep a hold of the you know power and stuff like that in terms of understanding well a messiah thing well i i don't know it's difficult to say it's it's a jewish hope um but it's a jewish hope that it was interpreted in a number of different ways and you know we're talking about something two thousand years ago and and it's often just vague in terms of what you know we're making generalizations that jews in the first century would have thought You know, it's like saying, you know, in a hundred years' time, people saying, well, British people in the 21st century thought X, Y, Z, well, that's a large cross-section, isn't that? So, um, in terms of Jews' expectation, they they expected a son of David, they expected a king, because that was part of their hopes, their longings, but it all had to do with eschatology, right? You know what the word eschatology is like? It's a future, future hope. Uh, last things. They're, they're waiting for a resurrection, a kingdom. They're waiting for, for glory, for uh, for a new age to come that will be brought in, ushered in by the Messiah. Um, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, so it's a very different thing for them. Um, but there's this kind of expectation. Uh, but because of Judas Maccabeus, because of you know, various things, because of Roman oppression and rule, uh, ideas about Messiahship had to do more with we can we can speed god's coming through violence through, res- through insurrection. um and so that's why jesus is a very different kind of messiah because he's not like that um and that's what kind of cooks the pharisees heads a little bit hold on a minute where are you when they ask about taxes you know do you, is it right to pay taxes to caesar uh, and it's like and jesus is kind of a little bit enigmatic on it and it's it's all because they're trying to figure out are you are you part of our camp Are you one who's going to, you know, is it going to be that that agenda again? And Jesus is redrawing that continually. It's not power in your way. It's power in a very different kind of way. I don't know whether that does it for you or not. (laughs) Thank you ever so much for everything anyway. Cheers, good. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, over here. Phil, you don't need to tell me where you're from. I could introduce you. Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's been amazing just to hear what Mark is saying. You've hinted at uh, a sermon that you were about to preach and you realize you got it completely wrong. I think it is helpful sometimes to um, think of things that are actually fairly cherished hermeneutic approaches to (laughs) bits of Mark um, and to actually hear where they're wrong. Uh, I don't know if you've got any examples of that because I think it's helpful for
1: us to feel a bit unsettled. At times, and challenged. I know what you're hinting at. Please of this. do that. I know exactly what you're hinting. Phil, Phil's from York, previously from Chester, and Phil is a Markaholic like me. Um, it's like an alcoholic, but only with Mark. It's that kind of thing. And Phil and I have long, geeky discussions and text conversations about Mark's Gospel. Um, okay, so certain we we read things and we have we bring certain assumptions to the text, don't we? We read things that we think it means this. Um, we hear it preached once, maybe we read it in a devotional guide, and we think that's, that's what it is. One of, the, one of my favorite ones to, to kind of plant a bomb under uh, is, is the widow's mite in chapter 12. Um, you know the story? So Jesus is in the temple, and he's with the disciples, and they're watching people throwing in loads of cash. And there's this widow there who puts in two small coins, and Jesus says, look at her, she put in all that she had to live on. And I've preached on that text as an encouragement to give, and I've heard other sermons on that text as an encouragement to give, except now I don't think that it is an encouragement to give. And let me tell you why. That text sits sandwiched in between a few things in Mark's gospel. It sits in between Jesus talking about those who devour widows' houses, early in chapter 12, and it sits just before the beginning of Mark 13, when Jesus walks out of the temple and the disciples say, Master, look at all these beautiful stones. And Jesus says, you see all this, lot? It's coming down. What follows in Mark 13 is called the little apocalypse sometimes. It's like this kind of very apocalyptic language. It's drawing in all kinds of Old Testament prophecies. And it's largely about the destruction of the temple. Jesus is saying, that this whole thing is coming down. And Jesus was right, because in AD 70, the Romans got fed up of the insurrections, and they raised the whole thing to the ground. And the temple was gone earlier in mark chapter 11 jesus comes into jerusalem and it says that he enters into the temple and he uh, and, and he looks around and then he sees a fig tree and he cur- he looks for fruit on the fig tree and he curses the fig tree because there's no fruit on it and then he goes into the temple and he turns over the tables and all the rest of it and then again he sees the fig tree and it's withered away to its roots And the point there, of course, if people think, well, okay, Jesus is saying, look, this whole kind of, this worship of, like, making people pay for stuff to worship is really out of order, and Jesus is is kind of somehow restoring worship, well, he's not really. On one level, it's very, very convenient if you have to come all the way from Capernaum in the north to Jerusalem with a, a, a squawking bird to offer as a, as a sacrifice. What you could do was bring money and buy a bird at the temple so you didn't have to flipping cart this squawking animal with you. It made it a little bit more convenient. What Jesus is actually doing is enacting the destruction of the temple. He's not reforming worship. He's saying, it's finished. It's over. There's an allusion to Jeremiah eight in that as well with the fig tree. It says that Yahweh came looking for figs and he found none. So what will he do? Well, he will give it all away. He will get he'll judge it. And so the whole piece is about the judgment of the temple, the judgment of the system. And then you've got the woman, the woman, the widow, the widow's might. Isn't it weird then that in, in the middle of all this stuff where Jesus is enacting the judgment of, on the God's judgment on the temple, that it's all finished, that the stones are all going to come down, that there's those in Israel who are devouring widows' houses, that he says something about, oh, how wonderful it is that this widow's giving two copper coins. What he's saying is this. How awful is it that in a place where a widow is supposed to be defended and supported and upheld by this system, that she has to pour out her life to prop it all up. That's the point of the widow's might. He's not saying how wonderful that she's giving, He's saying how awful that it's come to this. Now, I shared this in Mick Taylor's commission teaching thing and I got absolutely pilloried for it because I think everyone had preached on this text about giving and how excellent it is. But I think that this is the kind of hermeneutical work that you've got to do. You have to read the context. You have to look immediately before and after. You have to understand what Jesus' vocation is about. You have to try and understand the way that Mark has structured things and then things begin, oh, right, so there's something else that's going on here. Aha. See? See? Because the whole idea of Israel was that they were to be a community that upheld the rights of widows and orphans. And here it's all been turned on its head, and Jesus says, that's not right. And so it's because of that it's under the judgment of God. The widow kind of becomes an example of why it's under the judgment of God now. Does that? I know that answers your question. He's not a plant, honestly, but he might as well be. There were some other things as well. So we've, a few other people had hands up, but we missed you. Who else was? Right at the back there, Graham? there's someone.
0: Oh, hi, Alan. I'm Pete from Lancaster. Um, I really enjoyed your sessions, um, particularly this concept of kind of downward mobility um, of, of Mark and the way of the cross, this idea of, of the humility and um, the powerlessness and the broken. Um, nest that's reflected and how counter that was um, um, of, of what people expected from the side. And you've hinted at a few times um, about how that's a lesson for us as a, as, as a church, as God's people, um, as Christians, in how we approach maybe um, the world, how we approach evangelism, um, and, and kind of coming from that place of downward m- mobility and powerlessness. And I just wondered if you'd unpack that a little bit for you as kind of a church leader and maybe for you personally, if you like, how um, that's some of that lesson of, of Mark, um, that downward mobility, that powerlessness, that brokenness, that approach has kind of, as you said, it, it has kind of been outworked a little bit in your church or in you.
1: Yeah, okay. Oh,
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
1: Damn your eyes! (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, check my Christ like self for starters. I mean, (laughs) um, Mark's gospel is a journey. There's journey in Mark. I remember the beginning. It's like Caesarea Philippi is the highest geographical moment in Mark's gospel. And then it's all—it's a journey down to this kind of into this passion, predictions, the redefinition of the way, and then into Jerusalem. Uh, and so I think that the path of discipleship is one, uh, as an elder or as a, just a Christian, or uh, is one of learning and relearning, and, and redrawing and subverting. And it's—it's it's a painful process sometimes of, of really looking at your examining yourself, I guess considering your heart, your, your motivations in the light of Christ, in the light of the, the way of the Lord that's been redefined. Um, I've got to be careful what I say because there's members in my church around, some on the front row. <laughs> um, I think that the way that we try, uh, as a church, I think, let me talk about as a team, as an eldership team, uh, I think what we, have, what we try and model is a genuine sense of preferring the other, uh, of not having to be the one who calls the shots. Uh, It's producing and working for a culture in church where it's not about the man of God who does the stuff, uh, but it's about being the servant of all. It's about being the one who exercises authority through weakness. Um, we try and model it through collaboration. Um, sometimes it's torturous. It would be way, way easier sometimes just to to, to handle a pastoral situation by just banging out an email and that would be that. Um, but sometimes we, you know, we agonise over how do we how do we do? Here's, here's one example. Um, we had a had a situation fairly recently where we had to kind of really think long and hard about how do we handle this. And rather than thinking, rather than sitting around and trying to figure out who was right and who was wrong. We began the process by saying, how can we as an eldership wear the blame? How can we forego power and actually embrace being wrong? Uh, and so we started the process of reconciliation that was required by actually saying, we're really sorry and we're gutted because in some ways we have contributed to a culture where this kind of thing can happen. And we're sorry, we're gutted about that. And then we said, and you know, that in some ways has meant that we haven't been really honest with you about, about things where there's, where we've seen weaknesses, perhaps. We haven't been faithful, maybe, to speak the truth in love to you. Uh, and neither have we been that as quick as we could to affirm you. So it's about treading a humble path. It's not about trying to get your way. It's about saying, rather first saying, how, how are we wrong? And I don't think that many church leaders are good at that. Because, you know, they, they, we like to be right, don't we? And we like to be in the right. But Jesus, the one person who was the most in the right out of everybody else, was willing to be the one who was effectively in the wrong for our sakes. And so I think treading that humble path is one way that you can model the cruciform thing. Okay. Would the parents of, is that Jemima Ogden from Gateway Leeds, please return to Arctot 2? If you're not in here, very sorry. There we go. It's a technical conference, isn't it? Um <laughs> <laughs> it's one step away from a chalkboard <laughs> so there's what that's one example but i think that's quite uh, i mean mark would you say one of my elders is here that's probably one way that we try and enact that isn't it it's just uh you know just to, to uh, humility as a, as a team uh, not throwing power around but use but humility as the way the humility and powerlessness has been a way of power being worked out and things in church life And then there's all kinds of ways, like a husband as well, I guess, where you're, you know, you have to ask my wife about that.
0: That's great, thanks.
1: Okay, cheers. Any more for any more? Yes. Oh, okay, good. So there's one there. Just okay, I'll remember you. And yeah, here we go. Uh, Just here with a great up on Graham. the Graham's done well, hasn't he? Should we just give him a little clap because he has been very (laughs) good. See, so here, here is servant leadership model for you. Graham's on the core team, and he's willing to come and skivvy around with the microphone for young punks like me, so it's wonderful. Thank you, mate. <laughs> okay, here we are. Hi, I'm,
0: I'm Alex from Leeds. Um, Hi, Alex. I going to ask about the end of Mark, um, in terms of
1: where it ends. <laughs> Who said to me? Someone said to me, it "You yes, what someone said, oh, but you're going to get a question about the end of Mark. Yes, go on. Yes, I'm all ears, Alex, yes.
0: Yeah, so what... Yeah. If, if, <laughs> I, I didn't know about it, so, um, if you could just explain what you believe about that. Explain wh- I what I believe. Why it matters, it. I guess. Like, or
1: if okay. it matters. Okay. Um, I don't think that the bit that is contested at the end of Mark is Mark. Um, I think it reads more like a summary of Luke and Acts. If you read the kind of things that, are, that go on in there, it's more like the end of Luke and Acts. Uh, serpents poison, trampling, that that kind of stuff, miracles. That's kind of how it reads. I think that the the genuine... Well, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, questions of, well, is there a kind of a really ancient manuscript of Martin knocking around somewhere in a cave buried in the Middle East? There might be. Um, But I think the the, the important question is, well, what does this text do to you when you read it as a whole? This is what we've got. This is what we perceive as canonical scripture. And so when you get to the last bit of Mark and it finishes on that kind of hushed, weird note of of the women running scared and everything, it's like, well, what kind of ending is that? I think that little ending functions as a hermeneutical key that sends you back to the beginning to read again and rethink everything. Because if you notice, Jesus says, tell them that I will meet them in Galilee. And that's where it all began. It began in Galilee with Jesus appearing, proclaiming the, king, the gospel of God. And so I think that, that little last bit says he's alive. And go back to the beginning now and rethink everything. Read round again. It's a hermeneutical key, and so it does something to you in terms of the way you understand the whole. Um, I think, obviously, the very fact that we have Mark's gospel tells us that it didn't finish with fearful women running away, but there's obviously a story, and here you have it in your hands. So I think that's, what, that's the important thing to do with that weird ending. I, I don't think that that bit is Mark. I, I even wonder, you know, that verse 1 of Mark 1, I, I have a hunch, and I've not read it in the commentary, there's probably a commentary, so it might be completely wrong, but this is just my personal feeling, is that Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I, I wonder whether that's an editorial insertion. Just because it, Mark seems to make such a big deal of the way of the Lord and the Isaiah thing, uh, perhaps, I don't know. But the point is, what does, the point with all these questions is what does it do to you when you read it all? What does it do to you when you read this whole text and how does it work? And so that's, that's the way that I would take the ending. I hadn't, you might disagree and that's perfectly all right. Man with a blue shirt on there, okay? Very good. Thank you.
0: Hi Alan, it's uh, Steve from Darlington. Actually, Alex from Leeds has just asked the
1: same question I was going to ask. So um, ah. rather than re-ask it, let me just say thank you. These has been great sessions and thanks very much indeed. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Uh, we have one of our eldership team who has this habit of saying just. ...inadvertently saying the official amen at the end of meetings. So uh, he's not here, so we'll let, uh, we'll let Steve say the last amen. That'll be the amen. If you want to come and talk to me and ask questions privately, you can do a Nicodemus on me if you like. Come by night, but i have to wait till Zachary's asleep, please. Otherwise Susanna will brain you. Um, but more than happy. By the way, remember the books, recommended books in the bookshop. If you want something more geeky, more in-depth, come and ask me. I can point you in the direction of some more academic stuff... Uh, If you just want to bombard me with other questions, then feel free. Um, I'm here to serve. So God bless you. Have a great afternoon.